If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Surrey's hospital crisis and allegations emergency care is delayed. There's no restraint on doctors speaking out, and we're hearing doctors speaking out. How the health minister responds to criticism from a doctor who wouldn't send his own family there. An open letter from Surrey Police. Sometimes we forget the human factor going through this process. The message from the chief as the transition gets stuck in limbo. And accelerating BC Biotech. It's thanks to Absalara that we're going to be turning an idea into innovation and innovation into new medicine. The $300 million deal with Absalara that could transform modern medicine and boost the provincial economy. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with the latest volley in the ongoing battle over who should police Surrey. It's been nearly a month since the BC government recommended the city continue with the transition to a municipal force. Now, as Janet Brown reports, Surrey Police Service Chief Norm Lipinski is weighing in for the first time, saying the delay has a high human cost. Behind these warehouse doors, 14 Surrey Police Service vehicles fully equipped and ready to roll out, but they sit idle. The chief says it is frustrating not knowing what agency, whether the SPS or the RCMP, will be policing in the city. It's not optimum effectiveness to have two police agencies with the costing that is incurred, with the stress that it brings to everybody that is in policing in Surrey. And he says the uncertainty is tough on his members. Many of them came from uh, outside of BC and they sold their houses in Ontario or another province. They came here and incurred a mortgage. Lipinski has issued an open letter to residents and council saying completing the transition to the SPS has been identified by the province as the only option that will ensure public safety. We'd like some finality and we'd like some objectives, some dates that could be set of when will this be over. The Premier is weighing in. There's an upcoming uh, City Council meeting uh, June 5th uh, when the report will be presented and uh, there'll be debate about this and ultimately we can all move forward. However, Mayor Brenda Locke, who is traveling to a meeting in Toronto, says in a statement, there is no planned vote for June 5th, and it's unclear, she says, where this suggestion is coming from. While Locke says she is standing firm to keep the RCMP, the SPS says it is not solely her decision. I think uh, the sooner that we get to the decision, uh, by council and then the province making the final decision, the better it is for the citizens of Surrey. On April 28th, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth announced a recommendation for the city to continue with the transition. Locke says she is still waiting for the unredacted provincial report, but anyone who wants to read it must first sign a non-disclosure agreement, which the mayor has said is something she won't be considering. Janet Brown, Global News. A telltale sign of the challenges still facing the hospitality industry post-pandemic.
The Donnelly Group says it has filed for creditor protection. That's right. Krista Dow is live in Vancouver with more on this. Krista, the Donnelly Group has many popular pubs and restaurants, and it's big news in the industry when even it is struggling. Yeah, Chris, industry insiders are calling the outlook grim and says it's concerning that these restaurant heavyweights like the Donnelly Group are struggling to stay afloat when they have much deeper pockets and much greater resources, much more so than the little guys. So this is, of course, very concerning. Now, the Donnelly Group, which owns the Lamplighter, plus 15 other bars and restaurants in Vancouver and Toronto, says they'll be looking to restructure debt debt they said was taken on during the pandemic. Now as to what that will look like, the group says it won't be selling off any businesses but uh, will be working with lenders on a plan forward. Now the group says it is planning to keep all of its locations open during this time and calls this a survivor's tale and says this allows them to save more than 800 jobs. Now Meanwhile, the BC Restaurants and Food Services Association says more than 50% of the restaurant industry are losing money. Looking at the, the, the future of the industry looks a little bleak. Um, and I think you're going to see this happen a lot. And as a matter of fact, in the last two months, we've seen it. A lot of our favorite, uh, you know, our favorite spots have, have gone down, unfortunately. So we didn't want to be one of those stories. When the pandemic came, they had to close a lot of their venues. Business went down. They couldn't do it. So um, I think that's really alarming when you see a group that's got some resources behind them go down like uh, like is happening. Uh, you got to wonder about the small guys. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Krista, do we know how many bars and restaurants have gone under? Okay, Chris, according to Restaurants Canada, um, the number, the amount of bankruptcy filings uh, in the food service industry have increased 116% since last year, and they expect more to close in the coming months. So uh, we can expect uh, more closures and more rough days ahead for sure, Chris. Sounds like it. Krista Dow reporting live. Thanks, Krista. Now, the Donnelly one example of a business struggling to recover from the pandemic. Tonight, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade is warning many others are at the brink. As Richard Zussman reports, the board is putting the blame on billions of dollars in increased taxes and other government-imposed costs. They are costs piling up as high as these containers. You can see where this starts to become unsustainable for businesses that are trying to make ends meet. Creighton International, a Vancouver company, marking 50 years in manufacturing and exporting concrete waterproofing, struggling to keep up and remain competitive. We compete with companies that reside in the United States and around the globe. So when we're having a lot of rising costs here in BC, in Vancouver, then it makes it much more challenging on a global basis. The Greater Vancouver Board of Trade crunching the numbers to show how bad it is. By their estimation, businesses in the province's biggest city shouldering an additional $6.5 billion in costs including more than $4 billion for the employer's health tax, $1.6 billion for corporate income tax, $1.2 billion for paid sick leave, and half a billion dollars for the carbon tax. These are cumulative and they are also significant. And so we're calling on the government to take a sharp pencil to paper and look at ways to really reduce costs. The Canadian Survey for Economic Conditions has found that one-third of businesses in Metro Vancouver believe they will lose profitability 
over the next three months. While economists believe that midst record-breaking population growth, BC's GDP may actually go down. When other countries are looking at where they're going to put their dollars, they don't want to put them in places where it is a really high cost of living and a high cost of doing business. The board wanting the province to consider taking carbon tax funds and putting them back into business, removing PST on software and increasing the employer's health tax threshold. We led the country in pandemic supports for businesses and we're going to keep providing that support. Uh, when we got rid of MSP, uh, that was a very significant uh, tax cut for businesses. The hope now is the province will ratchet up help once again to ensure businesses can continue to deliver. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The lack of affordable housing and its effect on labour shortages is spreading across B.C. and into more economic sectors. For some time now, employers around Metro Vancouver have been dealing with the challenge of workers who can't find housing. Now, government agencies elsewhere in B.C., such as the school district in Vernon, are also having trouble filling vacancies because there's no affordable housing. This past summer was the first time that we actually hired people. Um, they wanted to be here, we wanted them, and then they had to walk away from the contract because they could not find a, a place to live. And that's just not uh, affordable housing, that's reasonably cost housing. The healthcare sector is also suffering. Interior Health data shows more than 15% of healthcare jobs in the North Okanagan are still unfilled. Well, they fished and hunted on this coast long before European settlers showed up. Now, a First Nation in Washington state says it should have been consulted before the Roberts Bank II port expansion was approved in Delta. What the Lummi are doing to stop the project and why next on the News Hour. One of the classics, the queen of rock and roll is gone. The huge outpouring of respect and admiration for Tina Turner coming up later on the news hour. Right now, though, a major port expansion in Metro Vancouver is facing some new legal challenges. A new terminal in Delta would add $3 billion in new economic activity once it's completed. But environmental groups and an Indigenous nation are challenging the federal environmental approval that was granted last month. Aaron MacArthur has the story. The ink on the approval of Delta Port's expanded Terminal 2 is barely dry and it is already facing two separate legal challenges, including one from a Washington State First Nation. The Lummi First Nation, based near Bellingham, has been vocal about its land and water rights in the Boundary Bay region. ...would be built adjacent to the existing... Robert it claims Bay. in court filings the Canadian government was well aware of its concerns dating back to when the project was first announced and that it was not properly consulted. Not just simply, you know, notice with the start of the low-end inspection, but given the rights, you know... In Canada and their proximity to the project, there will be deep consultation. A federal report dating back to 2020 found a new terminal would result in habitat loss, but the project was ultimately approved after the port revised its application. It is now legally required to create wildlife habitat and implement management programs to reduce negative impacts. The port has yet to reach a final investment decision on the project, but has been clear about the need for expanded capacity. We will run out of container capacity by the end of, under end of this decade. Groups had 30 days from the approval to file legal challenges. This week, several environmental groups also applied for a judicial review 
arguing the expanded terminal will harm critical fish habitat, impacting the endangered southern resident population of orcas. The government, um, in deciding that these effects were justified under environmental assessment law, has ignored its responsibilities under the Species at Risk Act. The federal government won't speak publicly about current legal challenges, but does say in a statement its decision-making for the project was appropriate and consistent with its legal obligations. The expanded terminal is still years away from the start of any construction. Federal permits need to be granted, and the provincial government is also required to sign off. The court challenge is expected to be heard later in 2023. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. SkyTrain users are being warned of some major delays on the Expo line through Surrey coming up for six weeks. Starting June 3rd, service will be reduced along the line between the Scott Road and King George stations. Trains will only be traveling along one side of the tracks to allow for the replacement of two aging track switches. Riders are being told to plan at least an extra 20 minutes to complete the trip and to check the display screens at stations for other service changes. Now, reaction tonight to stunning claims about the situation at Surrey Memorial by an ER doctor who says it can take days for newly admitted patients to see a doctor. Dr. Urbane Ipps spoke to the NewsHour last night, admitting he would think twice before sending his own loved ones there. And tonight, BC's health minister is responding. Kamal Karamali joins us live with more on what Adrian Dix had to say about the extraordinary problems in the healthcare system. Kamal? That's right. Uh, a harrowing situation here behind me at the Surrey Memorial Hospital, according to that one experienced physician who says that some uh, patients have to wait two to three days before they're admitted. And many doctors are afraid to speak out about just how bad it is at this hospital. We proposed the question to uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix on why doctors feel like they can't speak out about it. Bombshell allegations by ER physicians, conditions that are so dire at Surrey Memorial, a doctor would not send his family there, further alleging that Fraser Health is trying to keep it quiet. There is indication that Fraser Health for sure doesn't want us to talk to the public about this. Dr. Urbane Ip says physicians put up posters in waiting rooms, letting the public know they would be prioritizing patients with more urgent needs due to a lack of resources. He says Fraser Health staff tore those posters down. Are you able to say right now that no doctors will face any repercussions if they speak publicly about resource issues and wait times at their respective workplaces? No doctors have and no doctors will. But that's not entirely the case, according to Dr. Ip. He says when one physician put information on a patient's charts that they would have to delay treating the individual because of a lack of hospitalists on staff, they were reprimanded. They want to record it in the, in the chart to protect themselves. And they are being investigated. No wonder the group of physicians are worried about that, you know, they might you know, their job might be a stake. Health Minister Adrian Dix declined to comment on that case specifically. There is no restraint on people speaking out at Surrey Memorial Hospital or anything else. That no restraint is protected in, in regulation. Doctors of BC report physicians are increasingly frustrated, but speaking up could be problematic. Physicians generally 
want to get along and generally want to serve their patients. But there comes a time where the risk of saying nothing becomes a tension point for all of us. Fraser Health has stated there have not been any deaths related to delays, but ER doctors say it can't be known if it's not recorded. The health minister says he's looking into issues at Surrey Memorial and other hospitals. Some people may say that's not enough or they'd like us to do more, they'd like us to do differently. All that's fair enough. But everybody has the right to speak out. The issue at Memorial Hospital, this is a specific and substantive issue, is an issue in part in the emergency room, but expresses itself on the wards. Dr. Ipps says patients are waiting 48 to 72 hours in ER to get admitted. Kamal, it seems like there's conflicting stories here. You know, we have doctors telling us there are repercussions that they speak out. The health minister is saying they are free to speak. So where, 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 what's the real story here? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Uh, so if you hit the nail on the head, uh, we uh, posed the question multiple times to Minister Dix, uh, and he repeatedly said that physicians are free to speak publicly on any issues uh, related to wait times, although there is that discrepan discrepancy, as you mentioned, between what he's saying and what Dr. Ip and other doctors are saying. Dr. Ip says it's thought that they will pay some sort of price if they do get their warnings across. And he's also hoping that Fraser Health takes more of a proactive approach in being open with the public and open with the media. We only got responses from them and Minister Dix after posing questions. Uh, meanwhile, uh, nobody from Fraser Health would appear on camera for this story. Back over to you. Hmm. Uh, story's not done yet. All right, thanks for that. Kamal Karamali reporting in Surrey for us. Just ahead, the mystery over what caused a deadly crane collapse. Our call is for the RCMP to dedicate the resources necessary to conclude their investigation. The answers that lay hidden in a report that still hasn't been publicly released. But first, a fight on a bus that cost one man his finger. Metro Vancouver Transit Police are investigating a fight on board a bus that ended up costing a man one of his fingers. The incident started just before 6 p.m. Tuesday on the bus at Marine Drive and Ash Street in Vancouver. After making comments to passengers, one man was pushed, punched and knocked to the floor by another passenger. A third passenger was also hurt in the scuffle. Police say two men then left the bus but continued to fight with the victim ultimately suffering a broken jaw and a severed finger. And by the time police arrived, the suspect was gone. Police later caught up with the victim in hospital. They're asking any witnesses to contact Metro Vancouver Police. One man is in custody after he allegedly threatened people with a hatchet at an outdoor store in North Vancouver. Police were called to the Mountain Equipment Company store on Brooksbank Avenue around 7 o'clock last night. Staff say the suspect tried to buy bear spray and a knife, and when he was denied, he became upset and threatened to kill people. Police say at some point during the altercation, he walked out of the store and returned with the hatchet. Uh, there were multiple people, approximately 50 people, inside the store who were frightened and, uh, you know, called police. Our officers immediately arrived on scene and uh, confronted the male who uh, was taken into custody without a further incident. The suspect is being held pending a bail hearing. He's facing a charge of possession of a weapon for, the, for a dangerous purpose. MEC says emotional support will be made available to any employees who need it. A pedestrian has been hit and killed in a crash in Vancouver's Chinatown. According to Vancouver police, a woman was crossing the street near Maine and East Georgia over the noon hour when she was hit. 
The victim was pronounced dead at the scene. The driver is cooperating with the investigation. Anyone who witnessed the accident or who has dash cam video is being asked to contact the VPD's collision investigation unit. It has been nearly two years since a catastrophic crane accident in downtown Kelowna killed five people. Now, unions representing crane operators and steelworkers are speaking out about the lack of answers so far as the investigation unfolds. And Claudia Van Emmerich reports they're calling for more transparency. July 12, 2021, a tragic day in downtown Kelowna. A crane at a high-rise construction site comes crashing down, killing five people. Now, nearly two years later, union leaders are demanding more transparency from investigating bodies. Without the answers of what happened that day, it's very hard for this industry and us to advocate for the changes necessary to make sure this type of accident never happens again. Last week, WorkSafe BC announced it had concluded the investigation into the fatal crane collapse, but that it would not be released its results to the public due to the ongoing criminal investigation by the RCMP. The union representing hundreds of BC crane operators expressing extreme disappointment and a lack of progress investigating and reporting the findings. Our call is for the RCMP to dedicate the resources necessary to conclude their investigation. If that's what's holding up WorkSafe's report, uh, the industry needs answers. The sentiment being echoed by the United Steelworkers Union. It is two years later, and cranes go up and down in the province of British Columbia every day. And uh, we really know nothing about what happened there. The union's concerned about previous workplace investigations and employers not being held criminally responsible, including two mill explosions in northern B.C. in 2012 and the workplace death of Sam Fitzpatrick in Toba Inlet. The Sam Fitzpatrick case took almost 10 years and then it fell apart. We can't have that happen in this case. I can understand that it is super important to get this investigation right. But it's been two years. While the progress is slow, the unions call the RCMP's involvement a step in the right direction, adding that far too many workplace incidents are not examined through a criminal lens. Ultimately, we feel that if there's a fatality at a work site, that the, the lens of the uh, criminal investigation is where it should begin. And if that lens proves that there wasn't a negligent act that caused this, then the regulator uh, follows off on their procedures. Kent adding that the families of the victims deserve to know if any criminal elements were present. I can't begin to understand how the families have been able to cope, waiting for answers, and now they're still waiting for answers. Claudia Vandermer, Global News, Kelowna. Coming up, the e-commerce giant in a league of its own. They're taking advantage of low-cost countries. How Shein has grabbed a huge share of online retail sales and why critics say that's a big problem. Also tonight, the $300 million investment that could make BC a major global player in biotech. Members of the LGBTQ2 community are being urged to practice caution during trips to the United States. Advocates say some lawmakers are passing legislation targeting the community, and that could be a problem for Canadian travelers. Sean Preville explains. LGBTQ advocates fear travelers need to carefully weigh the risks of travel to U.S. states like Florida, a popular destination for Canadians. 
That's because Governor Ron DeSantis recently banned gender-affirming care for transgender youth. We need to let our kids just be kids. Among other measures, advocates call hostile. It is important that every person understand the facts, understand the situation on the ground and the new laws that have passed in Florida, and be able to make a decision, an informed decision for themselves. Carlos Guillermo Smith says Florida travelers could face difficulty even using the bathroom, as one bill restricts use of washrooms in certain public spaces to a person's gender assigned at birth. He also warned transgender visitors may be unable to find proper health care. North of the border, EGAL Canada says the risks are real, and Canada should issue a travel advisory. Travel advisory, ah, that's a minimum, uh, an absolute minimum as to what uh, our government should be doing. Uh, we certainly should be putting more into international development for 2S LGBTI folks, uh, and we should be doing more at home domestically to address this anti-hate uh, movement because it is growing and it's snowballing. Global Affairs Canada has put warnings in place for LGBTQ travellers to other countries, even ones deemed safe for most Canadians, but would not say if it will do so for states with so-called anti-LGBTQ laws. And for those working on the ground, the question now is what comes next? What we're seeing and what we're hearing from LGBTQ families and parents is a fear that the worst is yet to come. Sean Preville, Global News. A Vancouver-based biotech company is already a proven success, and now Abcelera is making history as the recipient of BC's largest ever private investment in a life sciences project. The province and the federal government are teaming up to contribute $300 million to the company's expansion. Kylie Stanton reports. For more than a decade, one Vancouver company has been breaking barriers. We're forging the way here at Abcelera to not only find these new medicines, but ensure they're developed here, they're manufactured here, and they're ultimately delivered to patients. And now it's one step closer to closing the gap. You can just feel the excitement. A new partnership has the province of BC contributing $75 million towards the expansion of the company, with the federal government investing an additional $225 million towards the project that has a total value of more than $700 million. I think that COVID-19 really illustrated the potential of this sector, not as an abstract research thing that we don't understand as British Columbians, but as something that provides real practical benefit to the health of everybody around the world. The funding will go towards Abcelera's state-of-the-art biotechnology campus, provide new training opportunities in life sciences and biomanufacturing, enable locally invented treatments to be trialed in BC, and create more than 400 highly skilled jobs. This is a big day for this industry. And it's a big step forward for the healthcare solutions for British Columbians. Lessons have been learned. The pandemic exposed some major gaps in Canada's ability to produce, manufacture, and distribute everything from medications and vaccines to PPE, leaving the country often scrambling to find solutions. The hope is this investment makes good on the government's promise to build back Canada's life sciences sector. 
We obviously did not choose the pandemic. We're not going to choose whether there's a next one. But what we chose as a nation is to better prepare. Hipcelera has proven it can manage scaling up. What started with just six employees in 2012 now has 500 and counting worldwide. And they say it's just the beginning. The opportunity that is now before us is to build on that, that momentum and create a life science sector that can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone in the world. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Since moving off UBC campus in 2018, Abcelera has expanded quickly in Vancouver's Mount Pleasant neighborhood. The company's headquarters is on Yukon Avenue with an expansion office on Manitoba Avenue. And when it opens its new global headquarters on 4th Avenue, it'll be nearly six times the square footage of its current buildings with a whopping 380,000 square feet of lab and office space. Well, still ahead, the power and presence of Tina Turner. Remembering the queen of rock and roll and the roller coaster life she led. But first, the online retailer rewriting the fast fashion rule book and why critics say it's not fair. Emergency officials are reminding Okanagan residents that the spring freshet is not over and not to let their guard down just yet. There is still a flood risk. Um, the creeks have definitely swollen, as you can see from behind me. They're definitely running fast. While most of the snow has melted, there is still some snowpack in the higher elevations, and that means tributaries will continue feeding waterways below, including Mission Creek. The added concern is the possibility of rain, a combination that could lead to some flooding. All right, well, let's talk about flooding then. Meteorologist Christy Gordon is here with more on warnings and maybe some good news, Christy. Yeah, so I think the reason uh, putting out that sort of a heads up to everyone that we're free, the spring fresh, freshet is not over is because we have had a downgrade in many areas. In fact, many areas now not even under a high stream flow advisories. Areas under a flood watch are highlighted in orange, and that's the South Thompson as well as the Quinell River. The other two are under a high stream flow advisory. But yeah, we're not done with the spring freshet. Still snow and still the possibility of rain in uh, sort of the, the weeks ahead. Now, now, tomorrow, not necessarily. We have a few thunderstorms right now. There is one area under a, a severe thunderstorm watch, and that's the boundary region. Right now, uh, there isn't anything major that's transpiring in that region, but still some rainfall. Tomorrow afternoon, though, we have the possibility of a few pop-up showers once again. This is tomorrow morning, though. Southeastern corner periods of rain expected there, and then that instability pops up in the afternoon, and it extends right into the Fraser Valley region. So a chance of a shower or thunderstorm later tomorrow afternoon and that brings in that possibility of some isolated heavy rain in sort of localized areas. So there's your forecast for your Thursday everyone. That chance of a thunderstorm extends from the central interior right down all across the south including the Fraser Valley potentially even east metro Vancouver. Tons of sunshine though for the south coast with highs ranging from 22 to 27 degrees tomorrow. A hot one on the way and we'll see that again on Friday. A little cooler over the weekend as a bit more cloud cover shifts in but overall, we have no major rain in the forecast, as you can see. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Parksville. Thank you to Frank for this one, showing uh, what it will be like in the months ahead as we head into summer. It's feeling like summer already, is it not? Definitely want to hang out at the beach more for sure. Thanks very much, Christy.
Well, the biggest name in fast fashion and e-commerce is a company called Shein. It has no physical stores, but it has a huge presence on social media. As Anne Gaviola explains, the company's meteoric success is driven by its rock-bottom prices, despite major concerns about its business model. Nine U.S. dollars will get you a trendy bikini on Shein or a fashionable dress. Three dollars for a banana-shaped hammock for your hamster. Analysts say e-commerce giant Shein is in a league of its own. They're taking advantage of low-cost countries and they're using the internet to really be their eyes and ears in terms of fashion. Pandemic trends were good for Shein's business. Explosive growth, especially among cash-strapped young consumers, crowned Shein number one in fashion revenue, unseating Zara and H&M, creating a new category that ethical fashion advocates are sounding the alarm about ultra fast fashion. Sheen takes that business model and pushes it even further into the extreme. It's not every two weeks now, it's every day. And it's not just one collection, it's thousands of new items every day. Sheehan was founded in China and moved its HQ to Singapore last year. Reports suggest the company is preparing to go public, though it tells Global News it has no plans for an IPO. U.S. lawmakers are urging the securities regulator to audit Sheehan over allegations it uses forced labor in Chinese factories. Sheehan Canada tells Global News its third-party suppliers must adhere to a strict code of conduct aligned to the International Labour Organization's core conventions. It says it's committed to respecting human rights and has zero tolerance for forced labour. Responding to concerns about its environmental footprint, Sheehan says it's been leveraging innovation and technology to minimize textile waste. For me, this is greenwashing at its best. Undercover investigations have shown factories that look more like sweatshops. Sheehan referenced its responsible sourcing program, supplier code of conduct, as well as investments to ensure workers are treated fairly and in accordance with local laws and regulations, as well as international labour standards. Addressing allegations it steals fashion designs, Sheehan says it's not its intent to infringe on anyone's valid intellectual property. Sheehan's suppliers are required to comply with company policy and certify their products do not infringe third-party IP. The company recently opened a 170,000-square-foot distribution centre just north of Toronto, a sign of its growing reach in Canada. It's a really tough time for consumers, especially Gen Z. They just may have to follow their pocketbook instead of their conscience. Anne Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. And apologies that your social media feeds are about to be inundated with Shein ads now. <laughs> especially if you have any kind of... <laughs> home device like a Google Home <laughs> or anything to listening right to the news hour right now. All right. Uh, Squire's here with a look ahead to sports. Squire? Yes. It's, uh, what time is it? Oh. Six something. Okay. So in about 20 minutes, the Vancouver Whitecaps and Pacific FC of Victoria will play their Canadian Championship semifinal a couple of years ago. Pacific FC shocked the Whitecaps in the same tournament. Yeah, I think two years ago we were a bit naive going into that game. Yeah, and Pacific beat Vancouver 4-3. That was August of 2021. And they have the ability to pull off another upset if the Whitecaps are still naive. All right, we'll cheer for the Whitecaps there. Also tonight... Tina Turner will go down in history as one of the most badass singers in the history of rock. Where's the lie? A look back at the career that spanned the highs, highest highs and lowest lows.
shows. Really? Yes. Talking about Reminiscing. Tina Turner. Tina Turner. Mm -hmm. The great. Uh, our good friend Aaron Chapman, who uh, we've had on this show a number of times, said that, uh, that she did. Tina Turner did a couple of doubleheaders, two shows at the Commodore. At the one Commodore. Day. That would yes. be amazing. I know. Sure. Incredible. Okay, so um, one thing we know about the Vancouver Canucks, they are not afraid to spend money. The problem is they just don't spend it very well. Too many bad contracts. Today, uh, CapFriendly.com pointed out that Vancouver will go into the offseason as the only team over the salary cap. Considering we knew the Canucks were out of the playoffs this past season by Christmas, having that kind of budget is like having a closet full of expensive suits, but none of them fit you. Now, of course, they will spend the summer trying to lower this number, although the cap will go up a bit. Just the same, they have to move contracts out. And we all know the names. They love the trade. OEL, not likely, but they'd love to get them out. Besser, Garland, Myers. They may have to offer a draft pick to get someone to take one of these guys or anyone Vancouver wants to remove from their roster to save money for next season. Victoria's Jamie Benn will miss the next two games of the Stars' Vegas series. If there are two more games, he's been suspended for cross-checking Mark Stone while he was on the ice last night. Dallas is down 3-0 in the series and not having Ben weakens them. This is a case of emotions getting the better of Jamie Ben. Not very smart from the captain and a veteran. That's Miami Dolphins coach Mike McDaniel banging the drum for the Panthers. If they win this game, they move on to the finals. Big hit. Sam Bennett on Jacob Slavin who had to leave the game. No penalty. It was clean. Matthew Kachuk gives Florida the 2-0 lead. But Carolina would fight back. Tavo Teravainen scores here to make it 2-2, but Florida has taken the lead, and it's 3-2 in the second period. If they win, they're in the finals. The uh, city of Kamloops has been getting ready for the Memorial Cup ever since they were chosen as the host city last year. Now, game one of the tournament featuring the Kamloops Blazers will be Friday. They'll take on the Quebec Remparts. That's Patrick Waugh's team. But being a host city means more than just hosting the games themselves. It's, it's unbelievable, really, the, uh, the buzz that we have in this community regarding this event. Uh, everybody's been talking about it for years. When we first bid, made the bid back in 2020, people were really excited about it, and you could really tell. And then the fact that we went after it again and we were successful in this, uh, the community's just embraced it, and it just continues to be top of mind with everybody I speak to on the, road, on the street. The Kamloops Blazers are looking to add another Memorial Cup championship banner to the rafters. Come Friday when the host Blazers open up the Memorial Cup against Quebec, the city dubbed the tournament capital of Canada can also refer to itself as sold-out city as it's already standing room only for every game of the Memorial Cup. Yeah, you know, I think you can. the closest thing to compare it to is when Vancouver hosted the Olympics in 2010 and how that brought the whole region together and we're experiencing that exact same thing in Kamloops right now. Come and watch the greatest show on earth, the Memorial Cup! It's been nearly 30 years since Kamloops last hosted the Memorial Cup, and for a city that has a deep love for its Blazers and sports, it's about three decades too long. Ticket demand has been through the roof, and good luck finding a hotel room. For the next 10 days, this is a city that'll be at maximum capacity, and it couldn't be happier. 
Yeah, it's tremendous. I mean, we're talking about $15 million worth of economic impact, which, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, we're still just coming out of that. And I think that's really huge for the community. You know, you're looking at hotel rooms in town that are full. Are full. Uh, you're looking at restaurants that are going to be busy throughout the week. People are going to be shopping in the stores. Uh, we're going to get national exposure. I mean, there's, you just can't pay for that type of, of exposure that we're going to get. And, you know, it, it really is a, a tremendous uh, driver of the economy. It's not just the hockey. It is everything that's going to be happening during those nine days, uh, whether it's the, the free concerts, the leader speaker series, uh, those types of things that the Memorial Cup host committee are bringing to Kamloops um, that the entire community can enjoy. It's something this community has rallied around uh, for a long time. It brings the community together and to hear some of the stories in 95 about the whiteout and about people walking across the Overlander Bridge to get to the games from the North Shore. Like it's just, I get chills just thinking about what 2023 could be. For us in Kamloops, sport is a huge piece of our social fabric. Sport is what binds people together that have never met before. Then they have a common team, which, which this event is the Kamloops Blazers. Now, when you think about it, Vanny Sartini got his first professional head coaching job because of Pacific FC of Victoria, the team the Whitecaps will play tonight in the Canadian Championship semifinal. I know I mentioned this yesterday. Losing the Pacific FC in 2021 cost Mark DeSantos his job, and Vanny got promoted from assistant coach because of that. Now, there are still a few Whitecap players who were part of that loss a couple of years ago, like Brian White. Yeah, I think two years ago we were a bit naive going into that game. Uh, they came out very strong. They have good players, and they came out with a lot of heart and intensity, and uh, we just couldn't match it on the day, so they beat us. So it's something that uh, we can't let happen again. We have to come out with the right mentality, the right energy, uh, and there's a place in the championship game on the line, and we want to defend that title in our home stadium, so there's a lot to play for. Yeah, whoever wins this game tonight will get to host the Canadian Championship either at BC Place or in Langford at Starlight. There you go. It's now about eight minutes until game time, Square. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Up next, remembering Tina Turner. Quite simply, the best. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what they're working on for tonight's News at 11. Jordan? Thanks, Chris. Another example of something that went away during the pandemic and never came back. Yes, there will still be a Canada Day party at Canada Place this year, but... It won't include fireworks. They actually haven't happened since 2019. And today, though, it was announced they're never coming back. The port blames rising costs. At 11, we'll tell you what's being planned instead. Plus, New Westminster police are trying to identify the vandals who spray-painted nearly a dozen vehicles earlier this week. Police have released video, and you'll see it at 11. Chris? Hope it helps catch them. Thanks a lot, Jordan. Well, Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll, is being remembered for her countless contributions to music, despite immense personal struggles offstage. She rose to fame with her husband, Ike, back in the 1960s. And when that abusive relationship eventually ended, she gave up everything to start over. Mike Drolet reports. With Tina. Live Aid was less a duet for Tina Turner as it was a coronation. She'd been a rock and roll pioneer in the 60s, whose star began to fade in the 70s. But when she took the stage with Mick Jagger in 1985, there was no question. Tina Turner was the undisputed queen of rock. Tina Turner will go down in history as one of the most badass singers in the history of rock. There was no one like her, and there won't be anybody like her ever again. Ike and Tina Turner seemed to have it all. Tina, with all that frenetic energy, drove their band to stardom. At home, life with the controlling and abusive Ike was dramatically different. 
And you left me on the highway. Drove off. By the time she got up the courage to ask for a divorce, she only wanted one thing, her name, which Ike had trademarked as a way of controlling her. There were three things that were valuable to Tina Turner. One was that raspy voice that nobody else had. Second were her legs, which she had insured for $3.2 million. And third was that name, Tina Turner, the one that Ike gave her. And in order to get out from underneath his thumb when she went solo, uh, she had to give up everything that she had earned to that point so she could get away from Ike. She left with 36 cents in her pocket, but she was free. Musically, she struggled as a solo artist until 1984, when she reinvented herself as a star on MTV. By the time she appeared in the movie Mad Max, she was unstoppable. And the law says, bust a deal, face the wheel. Her life was turned into a biopic, a musical, and a best-selling memoir. I had an abusive life. There's no other way to tell the story. By not shying away from her past, she became an inspiration to female artists everywhere. Tina rocks. You know, she's my hero and my icon, and it was just crazy. I went in the room and I just, you know, I I bawled because I I couldn't believe it, (laughs) really. She was the queen of rock and roll. High heels, big hair, and an even bigger voice. Tina Turner made it look easy, even when life was hard. Microlight, Global News. Now I know what I'm listening to on the way home tonight. Yeah, <laughs> that's been on everybody's playlist. And remember all also the song she did with Brian Adams, It's Only Love, oh, yeah. which was a big hit too on the Reckless album. He tweeted about that today saying, uh, you know, just giving her credit for the immense influence mm-hmm. that uh, she had on his career. Okay, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Two days of heat on the way, but keep your eye on the sky if you're out through the Fraser Valley. Tomorrow we do have a risk of thunderstorms. Same for those of you in the interior. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Good night, all.